Where the fuck you moved to Cincinnati? <laughs> um, here I am. There is no murder of history. It's just one damn thing after another. Right. It's really weird because I'm not really speaking to you in front of me. But I have to think of you in front of me because if I don't, then I won't be able to speak to you. How you doing? <laughs> It's me, Yoni Wolf. Here I am, Cincinnati, Ohio. It's zero degrees out. That's more of a slap in the face than like negative two or something. It's just zero. It's a vacuum. Fucking, it's like outer space vacuum. Wow. I'm going out in a minute. I'm getting picked up. Matt Melton and Doug are picking me up to go up to the uh, to the gym. We're going to fucking grind like Rocky. We're going to be dragging trees through the fucking icy tundra wearing spiked cleats climbing a waterfall no actually we're going to be on the treadmills and the track and the bikes at the gym very nice little situation warm gym i had a friend nicknamed warm jim actually in high school he was everybody wanted to be close to him i got i don't have wi-fi at my house anymore so i have a friend staying in town we went the other day to the library to rent uh, DVDs or borrow DVDs. It's some throwback shit. That's some retro throwback shit right there. But you know what? Now, since everybody else is on the net and all that, shit's unlimited. We went in there. I'm like, I asked the lady, I'm like, uh, excuse me, ma'am. How many, how many DVDs can we take out? She's like, oh, honey, it's unlimited. Oh, it's unlimited. What? So we grabbed a big-ass stack. We got Awakenings, you know, Bobby De Niro and, and what, Robin Williams or something? We got I don't know, it's a bunch of classics. Welcome to the Dollhouse, fucking Waiting for Guffman, Norwegian Wood, which is a Murakami book that uh, they turned into a movie, Japanese movie, beautiful foreign film. The piano, I had never seen that. It seems sexually alluring and still disturbing. I hear, I hear uh, Kaitel shows sausage. No, he shows buns. Kaitel shows buns. Why I mention that is because that's what to do. You can't really leave the house. I mean, hard motherfuckers like me and Matt Melton and Doug, we leave the house to go to go grind. But, you know, most normal people, sort of average people, muggles... A muggle is not going to really leave the house in this kind of weather, unless you absolutely have to. So we got these DVDs, so we can stay in, watch movies, eat snacks of different ilks. Maybe I'll roast some nuts. It's supposed to be cold for the next couple of days. That's cool. I'm good with it. I'm good with the Lord. Today on the podcast is my uncle, Barney. This is my mom's brother. And he's sort of the family genius, sort of the resident genius. A lot of families, uh, smart families, might have a resident genius. The person that just kind of, you go to this person because they know everything about everything. 
Uh, and that's, that's what Barney is for us. You know, sort of makes him a freak in a way. But he's also very personable. I did this interview with him in Cincinnati at my brother's house and at my house. You know, Josiah was, was, was in on the first half. Josiah's my brother. And he came here. It's a little weird, but it's really cool. He, he wrote this rap song. And one night, I'm going to sleep and I get this text. And it's like, hey, check out this rap song that I did. And it was him doing this like six-minute acapella uh, rap, apparently based on a Quincy Jones song from the early 80s or something, late 80s. It was really good. You know, it's kind of corny, of course. It's, it's sort of a, 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 a mock take on that song in a way. Not a mock take, but it uh, draws inspiration from. But it's really good. It's really well done. So he asked Josiah and I, would, would we help him, you know, make music for it and record it? And we said, sure. You know, most people say that and they're just like, okay, cool. And it never happens. He flew out. We, we worked on the song, recorded his vocals, hung out, went to a concert. Josiah and Liz had a concert. We, we kind of had it. We made a time of it for, the, for a couple of days. It was really nice. And we got the chance to have this talk during that time. And I think it went well. You know, I, it's very intimidating for me because, like I said, he, he is the guy in the family that kind of has always been the, you know, the, the, the know-it-all guy. Literally the know-it-all, not like a the boasty know-it-all, but he, he literally knows pretty much everything. I don't think he could work on cars. And I don't know about his carpentry skills or these kind of things. But in terms of like academic, just sort of knowledge of stuff, he knows it all. Or he figures it out. So I was intimidated, and you can hear that throughout this conversation. Uh, I want to know about everything, but it, you know about his life and everything. But there's so much that's over my head that it can be daunting. But I, I tried my best, and I told him that, and I, you know, and he he tried his best, I think, to to uh, help me help myself through the thing. It's a really interesting conversation. It goes beyond my capacity as a, uh, a guy that just hangs around and makes music and plays concerts. I think you're going to dig it. You may get lost at times. That's okay. It'll come back around. <laughs> and uh, it gets personal at times, and it, and it gets uh, global at times. I hope you dig it. Barney Rue. P.S. In case you're wondering, yes, I will play the song at the end of the podcast so that you can get a chance to hear what the hell he's talking about what I'm talking about throughout the thing. Sitting here with brother, Josiah Wolf, uncle, Barnett, Richard Rubin. Barney. Barney. Mm-hmm. Your name is kind of British, right? My name was given to my great-grandfather by an immigration officer. <laughs> really? Okay. <laughs> and and uh, you were named after him? And I was named after him. Okay. We kept it. The Richard part two? No, Richard is named after my um, great grandmother Rachel. Okay, okay. Giant steps. Yeah, that's my ringtone. <laughs> well, let's talk about what you're here for. I'm sure it's a good way to get into things. Well, this is—I uh, don't quite know how it started, but I, I left the State Department on October 25th, 
and of, uh, of course I started writing various things, a memoir, but um, somehow or other I was drawn back to Quincy Jones back on the block because of the feeling that I was back on the block out of the State Department. And at a certain point I realized that one of Ice-T's lyrics in his part of the song uh, could be changed very easily to fit my, my situation where he says, bread in South Central L.A., I could just change that to South Central Asia, right. which is a term for Afghanistan, Pakistan right. region, and so on. Um, so from there, I just started uh, fooling around with the lyrics. and uh, Like listening to Ice-T's rhymes and changing it? Ice, well, it's Ice-T, Big Daddy Kane, Melly Mel, and one other guy, too. I forgot his name. I hope he doesn't sue me. Uh, there are I think the other ones are going to sue <laughs> There are four rappers there. So I, I eventually I went through the whole thing. Then I went, also went back, and there's a, pro, a short prologue with uh, Quincy Jones and somebody else with, with a slightly different beat to it. So I, I did that, too. And then, uh, you know, the, the original song ends with a quote from Jesse Jackson, a sample of, of Jesse Jackson. Okay. So I originally, I, I, I found... Um, uh, a sample of Hillary Clinton so that was relevant, mm -hmm. but eventually I went through the whole. Th anyway, so I put in three samples: start, start, and end with Barack Obama. Have Hillary Clinton in the middle, and the Hillary Clinton sample in the middle takes the place of a female vocal segment that I, I'm not actually doing in my song, but okay. it has the, it has the same function. Anyway, so as I got into it, I more and more figure uh, understood. Well, and at some point, then I contacted you. Yeah, why about? Uh, at least doing some kind of a track. At that time, I was thinking of performing it at my goodbye party, which so far hasn't taken place. Because is that why you wrote it, though? Uh, that I think that sort of in, uh, it motivated me. Yeah, mm -hmm. but then um, the goodbye party is not taking place precisely because of some of the stuff I talk about in the song, which is uh, that my my homies who caught the foggy. Uh, are living jet lag. Is the foggy just <laughs> jet, just jet lag? Is no, foggy is the foggy bottom. That's where the State Department is located. Okay, okay. So I, ha I have invented a new term, caught the foggy, which means getting stuck in the State Department. Okay. You see, there's uh, there's what a you did for how many years? Four and a half years. Mm -hmm. But now I'm back on the block. Right. A lot of my homies still caught the foggy. Right, right, right. I got you. You got a lot of good. You have a lot of good, unique personal slang in there. Yeah, and there's a, a lot. We'll have to have some footnotes. There's because we have in the State Department, we have our own lingo, just like they do on the streets. Right. So I, I, I mix the two up in the song. Right. So and when you say back on the block, you mean back. I'm back in academia at my job at the Center on International Cooperation, where I'm the director at New York University, which means also I'm free to speak out, which, I, of course, you can't do when you're... So when you work for the State Department, everything's a secret? Well, it, even if, not everything's a secret, but um, I can't, you can't go... They have to maintain a consistent message. That's part of being a government. You try to maintain a consistent message. I see. You can't have your own... Um, Opinions Ideas and things, things. right, yeah. because that would uh, cause confusion, um, because I found in a few times when I did express my own ideas, people immediately jumped and said, ah, so American policy is changing. So the reason for that is the United States, you know, has to speak with one voice so as not to confuse people. So when you're in the government, you don't go out and express your own right. opinions. But now, so, but, but at that center, since you're the director, you can, you can pretty much... Have your opinions? Right, I can go on the media. I can do a podcast with. Right. Why would would that have been a problem? 
you know, to just talk to your, your nephews? No, not to talk to them, but... But to mention certain things you couldn't say. Things. But I wouldn't be able to talk about... I don't know if we will talk about it anyway, but about policy and, right. and so on. Right. You know, I used to go on TV a lot. That's why I one of the things it says in the in the song is, so I'm back on the block, I got my life back, so I school the fools without the change tract. Now, of course, changes tract function in Microsoft Word is how you revise texts. And in the State Department, uh, not, you can't write anything by yourself. Everything you write has to be reviewed and commented on by 10, 20 other people right, right. to be sure it represents the consensus and the official position. So they put all that stuff in changes tract. So now I can school the fools without the change tract. Right. And you're, are you, you're pretty much the end of the line for things at, at, at where, where you're at now. Right. Well, we, we don't have an, you know, an academic institution doesn't have an official position. Everybody can just say what they want. Right. And that, that's the whole purpose of it. And yeah. nobody has to listen to you. That's the difference from is that really the government. Nice to be, to be out of there. <laughs> it's more. It's uh, more relaxing, more freedom. Of course, I was doing things that uh, I believed in, or are trying to anyway, which is part of what the uh, song is about. And it must uh, have afforded you uh, maybe more power to make changes, right? I mean, well, it's hard to say. It's hard to say because the government is such a big organization. I was able, thanks to my being hired by. Richard Holbrook, right. who, uh, he plays the role of Quincy Jones in this song. He's the dude. Right, right. Uh, and uh, he, uh, thanks to Richard Holbrook, I was able to get into the government and have significant influence. But what eventually happens has to go through all kinds of processes like interagency processes and the intelligence community and so on. And I'll, I do express my frustration with that in the song. Right. That's when I say interagency messed up the IC, dressed up lies, perpetrated as truth, and it left us confused. Mm. But that's all about the uh, the interagency process right. uh, and uh, how confusing it can be. And even like sometimes the president will seem to have made a decision, but then... Uh, it doesn't get carried out. Right. And people try to change the official policy and so on. So that's why... Because because of people having differing... Like, pe that people aren't super behind what, what his position is? Right. Well, the thing is, being a president of the United States is not like being the dictator of North right. Korea. You can't just hang somebody because they're in your way. Right. And in fact, you have to do a lot of political work to get the government to go along with you. Because the people in the government are not automatons, and mm -hmm. you have to delegate responsibility to them, which means they have to understand and to some extent believe in what they're doing. Right. So you have to win them over, not just tell them, do this, do that. So often he comes in and he say he wants to close, close Guantanamo. But the people he's, who are working for him that he's telling to close Guantanamo are the same people who opened Guantanamo right. and have been running it right. for 12 years so, or something. So they don't necessarily share his point of view. And then Congress also can come in and make it more difficult, as they did with closing Guantanamo. Yeah. So sometimes the president... Which still hasn't happened. Still hasn't happened. They just, in the last few days, they started uh, releasing more people. Congress has eased the restrictions somewhat. The mm -hmm. president became uh, more determined in his second term to, uh, to try to do that. But, and that was one of the things that hampered the Afghan peace process, because the Taliban's first demand was that some of their leaders should be transferred out of Guantanamo to Doha. But that's why there's a line in the song where I say, let's see, I redraft, 
pre-clear, which means pre-clear is to send something to someone to check it out before the formal process is in place, mm -hmm. and defend, and I would defend, relitigate. That is something that's already been decided. You put it back in, in mm -hmm. play, and you have mm -hmm. to relitigate it. Reclear, get it cleared again, and resend, right. send again. Uh, uh, instructions that should have long gone by no dis. Now, no dis means no dissemination. Mm -hmm. That's a, a very highly confidential form of cable to the uh, instruction cable out to the embassy. So these instructions should have already gone because, as the next line says, decisions already made by POTUS by the President of the United States. Right. But sometimes the President will make a decision and then the implementation takes a long time. We have to re-argue it. So, and there's people that don't like that decision, so yes. they're going to stand in your way and do whatever they can to slow it down as much as possible, I imagine. Uh, that has been my impression, yes. Yeah. yes. And what would you do, or what, you know, I guess you weren't there during, you know, President that you, I mean, not, that, not I don't know that you're 100% behind everything that, that Obama does, but, you know, if, if you were there during during Bush two or whatever, like you know, would you have would you have held up the process? Didn't you start there before Obama? Well, no, no, I started under, only under Obama. Only under you see, Obama. and I came in. I was hired by a political appointee, Richard Holbrook. I wouldn't serve, and I wouldn't be asked to serve right. in a right. Republican right. administration. Right. So I, and the people I'm talking about are, are generally those are, uh, you know, government career employees say, in the military, the intelligence agencies, right. yeah. bureaucracy. And they're... Not cabinet-type people. Right, yeah. right. They, and they, they have to serve all presidents. Right. So you would have... Sorry to interrupt. Whether, yeah. whether you were retiring now or not from that job, if a Republican president was elected in uh, 2000 or whenever... And everything is just shuffled over. It's like, okay, here's our new cabinet. Then you wouldn't be working there anyway. Well, I was, I was hired by Richard Holbrook who was appointed by Hillary Clinton, who was the Secretary of State, mm -hmm. and then she was appointed by President Barack Obama. Right. So when, it, when, a new president, the president. when there's a new president, in fact, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, uh, he or she, as is possible, right. will appoint a new Secretary of State, mm -hmm. and that Secretary of State will bring in his or her own team. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I was part of the Obama-Clinton team, mm -hmm. And uh, I left for personal reasons. I, and I stayed on with Curry, and Curry, and Holbrook's successors um, asked me to stay on, and, and, and I stayed on with Curry as well and worked with him a bit. But after four and a half years of commuting between Washington and New York, uh, I decided it was, it was time to get back on the block. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, did you um, enjoy working with, with, with Curry? I mean, or Hillary, which, which do you, did you find was... For yourself, easier to work with. Well, I was in the bureaucracy. I wouldn't normally have any direct contact with the Secretary of State. Okay. Okay. Um, but I had contact with Hillary Clinton directly because she was very close, personally and professionally, to Richard Holbrook. Mm -hmm. And Richard also, the way he he had a way of working, which was not super hierarchical. He didn't want to stand in the way if something was. You have a real reverence for him, I know. Then he passed away. I do. I it's not an uncritical reverence. He made some mistakes, but yeah. he's the one who made this possible for me, and he had a very open mind. Okay. Um, when did he pass away? I, you know, I don't. Three years ago, him. almost okay. exactly three years ago, December thirteenth, twenty ten. Okay. Was it a tragic thing, or was oh it yeah, it was completely sudden. You know, he was sixty nine. Okay. He he uh, had some kind of a attack while he was actually meeting with. Secretary Clinton in her office on the seventh floor. I was actually in Dubai at the time mm -hmm. at a confidential meeting 
with people from Afghanistan and the whole region with the, from Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran, India, China, uh, UAE, Turkey, and so on. We were what discussing. Was this it was a track two meeting funded that CIC was doing my my institute because I was still at CIC while I was working part time at the State Department. Um, a track a track two meeting, as they say, unofficial meeting about the future of Afghanistan in the region. You know, trying to build up a regional consensus about the stability of Afghanistan, mm -hmm. and we did a whole series of these that were confidential. And uh, why did they we, have to be confidential? Um, it was non-government, so you, it was sort of like so people can under speak. The radar. So people can speak frankly. For instance, at one of these meetings, one of the big questions the people in those meetings had was about: Is the United States planning to have permanent bases in Afghanistan? In the, uh, in the future, and our, the U.S. government position, which I know from being inside the government is the truth, is that they don't want permanent bases. The United States does not want permanent bases in Afghanistan. It uh, is seeking a, an agreement under which it can keep troops there for a few more years, a small number to strengthen the Afghan security forces. But some countries uh, were very suspicious of that, especially Russia. And so at this meeting, when I uh, I he read, the Russian guy raised a question, and I said, you know, we're not uh, the United States is not planning on having any permanent bases in Afghanistan. And he said, he said, the trouble is we don't believe you. Oh. Now, in uh, a normal official meeting, or if, if there was any publicity, he couldn't talk that right. way. Right, <laughs> right. You know, so this is a chance to have a real frank discussion. But you also weren't in a position to talk speak for the U.S. Really, at that point, right? Because you were you were there with the CIC, no? Well, actually, I was dual-hatted. Um, they all knew that. I, I was speaking for the U.S. government, okay. but there was someone else from the U.S. government there, too, just okay. in case uh, I slipped a little bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. um, well, let's go back. How did you get into all this? Afghanistan? Yeah. And so? Yeah. Well, as it says in the song, way before UBL, I slammed and jammed around that little part of hell. Okay, and you know before UBL, of course, is Osama bin Laden. Okay, I didn't. Uh, I, I didn't yeah, UBL that. is Osama bin Laden. Got it. Or sometimes OBL, depending on how you spell it, and and uh, that's what he is often called in shorthand okay. in the government circles. UBL, um, and for most Americans, I guess their whatever attention they have paid to Afghanistan has been since September 11th, mm -hmm. when I was in, uh, I was in New York, actually, and I, I saw the towers burning. I was so were we. Were there oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I started working on Afghanistan in the 1980s, 1983. Actually, I did my, uh, I'm 63 years old now, so there's quite a bit of time that has passed. I did my dissertation, which I finished in 1982, about India. But I was also doing work on human rights in as a volunteer. You know, I worked for, I was started an Amnesty International group with some friends. And then and you started that at, at college? Uh, grad school, at University grad school. of Chicago. Mm -hmm. Then they asked, uh, asked me with some other people to start an like, expert advisory group on South Asia, not just India. But so at that time, we were working a lot on Pakistan, which was under a military dictatorship. But the Soviets were also in Afghanistan. So I started investigating um, the human rights situation in Afghanistan under Soviet occupation. That was about 1983. By little by little, I got more and more interested in Afghanistan, and uh, eventually my academic work crossed over into that as well from being about India. I mean, Although I also went over there at that time. Did you, yeah, a few, well, at that until 
1989, I didn't manage to go into Afghanistan itself. I was going to Pakistan. 1989, the Soviets had withdrawn from eastern Afghanistan, so I went into that area with some of the Mujahideen okay. fighters briefly. And uh, But I, then I've been to all the neighboring countries, too. Uh, as part of my career, also, I became the head of the Center for the Study of Central Asia at Columbia, so I went frequently to Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, the countries in, in north of Afghanistan as well. And that's all proven very useful. And, and Russia as well. And at, at the time, like with the Mujahideen, like, would they still be considered allies of what, you know, we're doing now? I mean, at the time they were fighting off the Russians, yeah? Well, there were actually many different groups among them. Okay. And uh, most of those groups are now actually in the Afghan government. Okay. Um, but some of, some of them uh, turned into the Taliban. Right. Uh, along both ethnic and the, the, the people, they uh, well, well, it was a complicated situation. Part of the Mujahideen took over the government. Uh, the Taliban were people who were not really represented in that in that government, um, and also Pakistan. Should they have been? Well, you can't really blame anybody for it. There was really the, the situation in Afghanistan did not make it possible to have a representative government. But they weren't actually, actually there was no government. Uh, the government was just very, very weak. Right. And so the Taliban arose in order to try to stabilize the situation in parts of Afghanistan. But then they developed their own agenda of conquering the whole country, and that's where uh, things went wrong. Yeah. But, uh, and of course, regional powers, in particular Pakistan, had their own ambitions, and they saw the Taliban as serving their interests and they're still using them for some leverage today. You know, there are some economic issues, too, involving trade, oil and gas. Of course, everything is quite complicated. I was curious if your initial interest in that region, because there's so many places in the world that you can yeah. pick, came from personal relationships that you, you know, did you meet some people there that you really felt a kinship with, and then you decided you want to... No, that's exactly what happened. It was personal relationships. My... Actually, there's no good reason for my being involved in this area of the world, and I often think it, maybe it was just a huge mistake, and I think a lot of the people who live there feel the same way. Hmm. But uh, uh, my roommate in co one of my roommates in college, when I, I went to Yale from 1967 to 72, it was five years because I dropped out for a year, was from Sri Lanka. His name was Seneca Senanayaka. still is, I believe. Uh, and he's a, a painter. But he was a very sociable character. So our room became like a social center for everybody from South Asia that was at Yale at the time, including several people from Sri Lanka who became rather well-known later. And as I had no idea what to do with myself at the time and had not yet realized that I was going to have to earn a living, I uh, just became... And I had another friend named Larry Lifschultz also, uh, who was also at Yale. I met him... I met him in the streets of Chicago, actually, during the demonstrations in August 1968, the demonstrations at the Democratic National Convention. Right. Okay. I met him kind of, I said hello to somebody else named Larry, and uh, who I knew from Yale, and then two people turned their heads to me. They were both named Larry, and both were in my class at Yale. Huh. So I met both of them. So Larry spent a year and a half in South Asia, in India, and in, and in uh, Bangladesh at that t uh, about that time. So the two of them together got me interested enough in South Asia so that I abandoned the idea of going to law school. That's what you had been planning on doing? <laughs> well, I never really planned on it. It was like a default option. You know, don't know what to do, go right. to law school. So, mm -hmm. uh, and I, I got into a number of them. But I ended up going to graduate school and writing my dissertation on India instead. 
Were uh, Arthur and Shirley have? Did they have? Did they push you towards any direction? No, they never pushed me toward any direction. I think they were intimidated by me. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Because you you were the little genius boy. Uh, Something like that. It was a terrible situation. But yes, why did I say it was a terrible situation? (laughs) No, it wasn't terrible. But let's say. Look, they never tried to push me in any direction at all. They never even informed me that I would have to support myself. I kind of had to figure that out myself. Right. But the economic situation in the United States was quite different at that yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. You mentioned your, a bit about they were intimidated, but, but how, how did that start to develop where you, where you started to be sort of realized that you were some kind of brainiac? Oh, you know, I did well in school, that kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, I was always interested in, in, in learning more and learning languages and, and so on. And, of course, you know, my grandparents and great-grandparents were immigrants and uh, without much education. Although, of course, the people who were already living in the United States also had much less education at that time. You yeah. Know, so they were, it wasn't so different. But, you know, then my parents both went to college and they were the first people in their uh, in their families to go to college though actually my one of my grandfathers did get a pharmacy degree but I don't think that was postgraduate at that time uh, but which was at least post high school um, and uh, then you know because we had an average uh, average decent middle class way of life with a very strong Jewish ethic focused on education and right. knowledge and so on uh, I had and also because unlike them, I wasn't growing up during the Depression. I was growing up during the post World War II yeah. boom, the fifties. You know, yeah, yeah. things were happening. So uh, there was a lot more freedom to choose things and opportunities, and uh, I was able to take advantage of that. Did all that stuff lead towards you feeling like you should keep learning, or was it? Did it become an obsession, or you just really loved it? Like, uh, as in, did you feel like? Under pressure to do so by some sort of internal. Uh, yes, I was under. I was under a lot of internal pressure, and I still am. Yeah. To uh, keep doing things. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's just in your nature. Yes. No. Uh, now people had to pressure me to do one thing rather than another, or to get something that I was less interested in done on time. Right. That is has always been the case, and it's still the case. Right. Um, but uh, I was always under a lot of internal pressure to do things and learn things. For instance, just doing this song right. is something a new completely completely new, and I have become rather obsessed with it, and yeah. I will only purge it from my system when we complete the recording. We'll complete it, and we're going to put it at the end of this uh, conversation as well for all of my listeners. Great. Um, but... Uh, and, and when did you start learning languages? You start at just in in elementary school. You started learning French or something like that. Well, of course, my parents sent me to a Hebrew school, but that was Atlanta. junior high, no? No, 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 no. I'm not. I'm not talking about day school. Uh, oh, oh, Hebrew. Just Hebrew okay, you know, yeah. Sunday sure, school. Sure. Sunday school. Sure. Sunday school. I should call it at at the synagogue. Maybe starting when I was maybe in fourth grade, I think you know. So I started learning Hebrew. I didn't really learn it as a language. Learned to read it, you right. know, for the prayers and so on. And then uh, in sixth grade in public school, I misbehaved and became uh, obstreperous. And the teacher said that it was probably because I was bored and I should go someplace more academically demanding. She recognized that you... Yes. Well, my elementary school was one where, like at the sixth grade graduation, 
they gave awards for athletics for like an hour, and there was no award for academic achievement at all. See, they had an award for good citizenship, which was a euphemism for something so shameful they could not openly discuss it, namely academic achievement. I see. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> so, citizenship. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I didn't get the citizenship award because I was a bad citizen that year. Does that still drive you to- forward? <laughs> no, not really, because uh, then... Then one of my teachers yelled at my other teacher in the hallway and said, how could you not give it to him? You know, it's really for good scholarship. Right. So then she came back to the room and embarrassed me by telling all the students, uh, of course, there's one person we should recognize for his outstanding blah, blah, blah. Oh, God. They all applauded me. Anyway, so anyway, so obviously that was not the right environment for me. So they sent me to a, a Kiba Hebrew Academy, a Jewish day school. And there, uh, I was there for six years, 7th through 12th grade, and we had we, re, Hebrew... Ten periods a week, as a language, and I zip right through that to the uh, top level Hebrew classes. By the time I graduated in twelfth grade, I had published a translation of a Hebrew author okay. uh, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And then they also had French, uh, five periods a week. That was also compulsory. So I had those. Then after school, they had some. Uh, I would call her an old lady, but she's probably like the same age that I am now. Anyway, what appeared to be be an old lady from Vilna, as she called it. Now it's called Vilnius in Lithuania, who taught us Russian for 45 minutes a week. So I can't say I learned Russian, but I learned the basics. And then for some reason, I decided I wanted to learn German. So my parents actually got me a tutor, a German graduate student from the University of Pennsylvania, and I had German lessons once a week. And I remember I was quite unconscious. You're you're still in high school at the time. Yes, I'm in high school. And then there was a teacher at the school, rather strange individual. But anyway, he, he influenced me intellectually quite a lot. And uh, in return for babysitting for his young daughter, he gave me lessons in Latin. So mm-hmm. so by the time, in high school, I studied that's Hebrew, six, French, six. German, Latin, and Russian. Yeah. Okay. Then at university, at, college, at Yale, I also studied Spanish, which because I became radicalized at that time was also because I was building my relations with the working class in the United States and New Haven, which Spanish. was partly Spanish-speaking. Yeah. I was working in the kitchens at Yale with people at that time, mainly from Puerto Rico. So I was learning Spanish as well. I continued with Hebrew and French a little bit. Then that was a bit of a low period for language acquisition. But in graduate school, then uh, because I was working on South Asia, I had a I studied Hindi. And Hindi and Urdu, which uh, is are very similar languages, that basically they're based on the same spoken language. But I learned both alphabets and so on. And then I I, I uh, audited a class on Arabic okay. uh, for a couple years. And then after I got my PhD and started working on Afghanistan, I audited a class on Persian while I was teaching at Yale. So uh, and then for some reason I picked up Italian just by going to Italy and talking to people. Yeah. <laughs> so so you speak about 12 languages. Something like that. Jesus. Yes. But not, not really. No, I don't. But most of them I don't speak you, very you well. You can get by in them. Yeah. Though. You yeah. could be in. French yeah. I know very well. Hebrew. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I pick up Hebrew if I'm back in Israel. Right. Quickly. Arabic I never learned properly to speak. I studied reading classical Arabic. But you, you what do they speak in Afghanistan? Uh... There are two national languages, Persian, which in Afghanistan they call Dari, and then another language called 
uh, Pashtu, which is the language of the Pashtuns, who have okay. long been the dominant you, ethnic You can group. speak both of those? No, I don't know Pashtu at no. all. Okay. Pashtu is a very complicated okay. language. But and it's not Persian, related really to Persian? Yeah, it is. It's it from is. the same language family, Okay. Uh, the Iranian language family, yeah. but it's quite different. Okay. In, in Asian languages, you don't speak? Uh, uh, say, uh, no, no, uh, no, uh, not, no, I don't know any Chinese, Japanese. Are, are you going to have to learn Chinese? I mean, you're going there a lot. I am, but I'm dealing with people who speak English, and it's too late. Yeah. <laughs> it's too late for me to learn Chinese. Chinese seems very difficult. Uh, well, to read it is extremely difficult. Even just yes. to say, I mean, Japanese, at least as, as an English speaker, it, you, can, you can say the words. Well, Chinese, uh, because it's tonal, it's something new that you have to assimilate into your linguistic repertoire. You know, yeah. hearing and speaking, mm -hmm. where the meaning depends not just on the phonemes, but also on the on the tone rising or falling or neutral in which you speak them. Yeah. So that's something it's, that is much harder to learn as you get older. Yeah. So you're in college. Uh, you, you know, you're getting into political stuff in the U.S., it was a hotbed at the it time. It was, you know, war in Vietnam. Yeah. So like it, Panther like, Party. That was someone with, with feelings. That's kind of what you do, I guess, right? At the time. Yes. I, I developed an FBI file, too. But for some reason, that did not prevent me from getting a security clearance. A top secret security clearance. I think clearance. By, probably by that time. Yes. A lot of those people probably were doing the same stuff you were doing back then anyway, the people who would clear you. Perhaps. Right? I was once interviewed for a job at the CIA when I was in grad school, and I told the guy I had this record, and he drew himself up, and he said, Mr. Rubin, are you aware that J. Edgar Hoover is dead? So, in other words, we don't care anymore? Yes. Okay. That's right. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good to know. I think we should get back to work because I may have to leave early. Yeah, okay, okay. Well, let's do it. Let's do volume it. Volume one. That's volume one. Maybe we'll get more later. Okay. Yeah, if, if we get to these tracks, we can do a little more talking. Oh. Yeah. I'm curious, since it just kind of came up a little bit, what, like, I want to know about my mom when she was a kid. Your, your impressions of her a little bit. I'm curious. <laughs> My what? impressions of your mother. Yeah. Well, she was younger than I was. Yeah. We were quite close, which meant that we fought a great deal. Yeah. Uh, of course, her friends would come over, and I would give them the eye. Right. As a kid, though... It's so far, it sounds like me and Becky. So far, she may, it may... Um, as a kid, and this may explain why she works out so much now. As a kid, she was... She's fat. Fat, yeah. yeah. I was going to say overweight, but she was... You know, she was uh, chunky. Yeah. Also, you know, she was like, she was 19 months younger than I was. Uh, she still is actually 19 months younger <laughs> than I am. That hasn't changed. Uh, but it's become much less significant. <laughs> yeah. But at any rate, so she was uh, kind of in my shadow in terms of schooling and everything. You know, she was the middle child right. with everything. You'll have to ask her about that, but I imagine that was something that she had to learn to live with. Yeah. I mean, I've, you know, I've talked to her about that stuff Yeah. Uh, to one extent or another. I just wanted to know your impression. I mean, like, was she was she always kind of, like, uh, you know, perfectionistic and sort of... Well, I, I didn't, you know, uh, when I was a little kid, I really had very little insight into people. Right, right. <laughs> Uh, including into her. 
I don't know that she was perfectionistic. I mean, then we had kind of an extended family too, because our next door neighbors, the Ellises, yeah, where that was Ruth Ellis was my mother's best friend, and Saul Ellis was an old friend of my father's, and then their kids, Arthur and Randy, where we were all like part of an extended family. So, in particular, Rachel, Arthur, and I were all. Arthur was in between us in age, so we were three. We were very close in age, so we. We started a theater group called the Bar Theater. Okay. The Barney Arthur Rachel Theater. Oh, wow. Okay. And we would put on performances in our basement. Really? Yes. What kind of stuff? Well, of course, I don't remember it all, but I remember that I used to do an imitation of Steve Allen, someone you may never have heard of. I've heard of Steve Allen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, I don't remember what else. Maybe she would remember. But then we'd invite the neighbors in, you know, and this, this would be in the sum, on summer vacations. So yeah. And we'd have the the bar theater. So you said you'd do it in the basement? The basement of 1406 Drayton Lane. Which I was never at that house. Yeah, yeah but you've seen it from the outside. Right? I've seen it from the outside, yeah. 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 No, yeah. we were there till I was 14. Okay. And then, then you moved to, to Narwith after that? Road. Yeah. Yeah, to Marion. Or Marion, yeah. Yeah, close to Narwith. Yeah. And they decided like, to do it, I guess, when I was 13. Rachel was 11, 12. So... We were becoming teenagers, and they decided that we uh, needed more room. And th- in that house, you see, we all had our own bedrooms. In the previous, and I had the whole attic to myself. Okay. In the in Drayton Lane, the girls, Rachel and Phyllis, shared a bedroom, which is right next to mine, and it was all kind of small and crowded. Yeah. Okay. You know, you see your parents in a different light when you when you're an adult, and you kind of think about them. Well, you see your siblings in a different light when you're an adult. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. I guess you continue to change the way you think about everyone you have a relationship with as you change yourself. But yeah, let's go back to to college era. You became interested in in the South Asia stuff through these friends of yours. That's right, yeah. What drew you into wanting to you know, go over there all the time and be really involved? Honestly, I can't give you a good answer to that. I just didn't have a clear idea about what I wanted to do. First, I applied to, see, my undergraduate major was um, history with a concentration in Afro-American and Latin American history. And I actually applied to graduate school in that, and I got into a very good school, which in that discipline was University of Pennsylvania, but they, they admitted me with no financial aid, and they sent me a letter saying, frankly, we do not advise you to accept this offer because it is too expensive. There's, no, there's no job opportunities right. in the field. So I, I took them at their word. Well, so now I, they have like African-American studies, Latin-American studies, that you, would be, you could be a teacher. Right. It was just that. starting then. Yeah. And uh, it was, you know, pretty embryonic. Uh, you know, so I thought I'd go to law school, so I applied to law schools, and I got into some of them, and, including University of Chicago. But, I don't know, I was restless, I wanted to travel, and the the personal connections I had were to uh, South Asia. I had no particular re- reason otherwise, you know, but I went, I mean, the first time I went to South Asia, which was in the summer of 1973... I basically went to visit my college roommate, Seneca, Seneca, and I spent six weeks with him in Sri Lanka. Okay. And then since I was in Sri Lanka, I spent six more weeks or so traveling around India. You just, you stayed there? And Nepal, too, actually. And I met some of 
Larry Lifschultz's friends in some places. Other places, I just showed up. Uh, I don't know what I did for money. What did I have for money? Was it sort of like a hippie journey feeling? Uh, Well, there were hippie journey elements of it. I did not really qualify as a hippie. Were you you doing drugs and stuff like that or no? No. I met people who were doing drugs. Yeah. I might conceivably have smoked a joint somewhere on that trip, but I do not actually remember doing it. (laughs) I was around when some other people were smoking joints in Kashmir. But that was not a big part of my uh, my trip. And uh, I just, I, I, I guess, you know, I had just graduated college... I don't know. I mean, I, I did it on very little money, actually. In fact, I completely ran out of money. and My parents had to send me a little bit in Delhi at the end in order for me to get home. Uh, but I stay. I, you know, I make. I can't believe how I traveled at that time. I would just like show up in a town and look for a cheap in a city in India and look for a cheap hotel. Yeah. You know, get off the airport and look for a cheap hotel. I didn't have a reservation or anything. And uh, I wound up in some very odd places as a result. <laughs> but at that age, you, you can kind of handle that sort of thing. Yes, like whatever. Yes, you know. I was 23 by myself, and I managed it. I also went to Cochin. I went to the synagogue in Cochin, which is from the 17th century. Okay. I went to Sabbath services there, and I was called to the Torah and said the blessing. And then I was invited to lunch at, by one of the leaders of the congregation, who was actually, he was also the honorary Dutch consul in Cochin because the Jews had a certain relationship with the Netherlands which had taken that area over from the Portuguese in the 17th century and that's when the Jews found refuge there from the Portuguese Inquisition. And so were these all, were the people that were part of the synagogue, were they they, like racially they were like what, European people? Well, most, there were different groups of Jews that got there. In In Cochin, which is in Kerala, which Faces it's on the west coast of India, facing into the Arabian Sea. Okay, um, there was a, an old community. You know, in in the Bible, there's one word in a South Indian language, uh, in Tamil actually, which is related to the language they speak in Kerala, and that's the word for peacock. And okay. it appears that there was trade from uh, the Middle East. Uh, to around the Arabian Sea. It's what's called the Spice Route, to that area. Sure. And that's also the area where supposedly um, one of Jesus' disciples, I forget which one now, went later. So there's a very old Christian community there. Okay. But there are also Jews. The earliest Jewish community recorded there is from something like the 4th, 6th century, something like that. Um, And there's a remnants of that old Jewish community which intermarried with local people and became divided by castes. You know, they called them white, black, and brown Jews. Then probably the largest... uh, Well, then there was another group of basically Sephardic Jews who came with the Portuguese as Muranos. Right. Um, And then when the Dutch took it over... Just part of the trading groups or whatever that would go down there? Yeah. And then when the Dutch uh, took it over, um, they were able to start practicing their religion openly, which the same thing happened when the Dutch took over parts of Brazil. Uh, you know, the Jews there took... Uh, or when the Dutch took over New Amsterdam in the United right. States. You know, the first Jews in what is today the United States were Portuguese Jews who went to the Dutch uh, colonies because the Dutch were religiously more liberal. But the biggest group of Jews in the area was from the Baghdadi community, from Baghdad. Okay. Yeah. Um, because during the period of British colonialism... 
there was a great, huge expansion of sea trade uh, between the Middle East and that area. And a lot of the, and one of the important groups in that sea trade was Jews from Baghdad. Are these from Jews from after the first temple, like Nebuchadnezzar and all that stuff? Right. Well, so the, there's been Jews in Iraq since that time. Yeah. yeah. In fact, uh, Baghdad at that time was a very uh, cosmopolitan and mixed city. And uh, some statistics show if you count, if you look at Christians, Sunni Muslims, Shia Muslims, and Jews, the largest group in Baghdad at that time was Jews. Oh, wow. Now, Muslims were larger than Jews. When you say that time, you mean Nebuchadnezzar? No, 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 19th you're, century. You're talking about 19th century trade. Yeah, even trade early, early 20th century. Got it. Yeah. Um, so they were very important, and some of them settled in, uh, in Kerala. But also, you know, there's some famous families that you've heard of from that community, like Sassoon. Oh, wow. Okay. Right, like when I was in Shanghai uh, recently... Uh, they showed me, uh, there's a very big hotel, I forget what it's called, the Peace Hotel on the Bund, which is the the main European area of Shanghai, which was built by members of the Sassoon family. Okay. And it's one of the big landmarks Who Who were Shanghai. British Jews, no? I mean, but but they were from down there and moved well, up. Well, they to... were Baghdadi Jews. Okay. Vidal was British, but, I know that. That's right. Know. Well, they moved to Britain afterwards. But okay. there were Sassoons and other Baghdadi Jews in, in Hong Kong, in uh, in Shanghai, Okay. And in Calcutta, the rab when I was a teenager and I went for a while to the Sephardic synagogue in Philadelphia, the rabbi there was a Baghdadi Jew from Calcutta. Okay. Uh, so, and the largest group of indigenous Jews in India these days is the are the descendants of the Baghdadi Jews. There are other little groups from older communities, but mostly it's the Baghdadis. Okay. Huh. I don't remember what I asked you, but that's. Uh, going to India in 1973, yes. being interested in South Asia. Good. You're yeah. going to have to help me throughout this because that, That's yeah. That's all right. It's We're a lot. You, you know way too much information for yeah. me to. Um, or for you to put on your podcast. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely putting it on the podcast. Yeah. Pe- people try to go to sleep to this podcast, oh, so it's okay. going to be perfect. Well, this will help it's going to be perfect. Great deal. Um, <laughs> uh, so after that, you went back to the States. What? 73. Yeah. Yeah, that's when I, and that's when I went to graduate school. And you were like, this, I'm going to be, I like this region, I'm going to study this region. It, well, I did do it. Whether I was like that, I don't know, but I did it. I went to the University of Chicago, Department of Political Science, and I, and I started preparing to write my dissertation about India, which I did. Now, you're, I'm sorry, you're, so your undergrad was at undergrad Yale. Undergrad was at Yale, and then I went to graduate school at the University of Chicago. But the undergrad was... was history. Was history, just... just African-American, or as we called it then, Afro-American. Okay, so I, I, I misunderstood. So, so, so it, it was in that, and you were, you were hoping to continue that, and has the U of P and all that. I was thinking about it. One should have to recognize how uncertain everything was. That's Barney's ringtone, Jazz. That would be so I Take a pause for the cause. Yes. When we got married, and when we met, she didn't think she was marrying someone or getting together with someone who was going to be away that much. She thought she was marrying someone who would be a college professor. Oh, so is that what you thought initially? Yes. Whereas whoever marries you or gets together with you, whether permanently or temporarily, will do so with the full knowledge that you are a touring musician. Right, right. And therefore... Then I settle down, and they don't know what they're in for to have me around all the time. Right. You know, like, that was the issue with uh, Josiah 
and, and Julie. And Julie, right. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I think so, that was a major, yeah, that was they, a major part they, of the it. Was, they did it very young before their lives had solidified. And, yeah. And Josiah and Lizzie got together at a time when it was clear what Josiah was doing. Yeah. And Lizzie was a part of that. Yes. Or Liz, I shouldn't say Lizzie. You Liz. could say Lizzie. Yeah, okay. I, I guess. I no one else calls her that, but I yeah, like so that. So I won't either. Liz, okay. <laughs> I like it. I, she's too dignified to be called this. <laughs> Has it been hard to navigate? That, that I mean, how, like, th- this is going to be, it'll be a lot better now, yeah? So we'll be back I hope so. More often. But I still travel, you know, I still have to sure. travel quite a bit. Sure. In, here in, in the nature of my work. But you don't have to be gone half the week every week. No, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So I'm home much more. I'm sure it's still a strain to ha- that you had to go to D.C. all the well, time. Well, I can't believe I did it, you know. Yeah. Uh, get up once a week. I'd have to get up at 4 or 5 in the morning, get the 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock shuttle, and go down there and stay in hotels and so on. So four and a half years, that's a long time to do that. You just got different hotels all the time? You didn't have, like, an apartment that you always stayed in? No, I didn't, That because of the peculiar way the government works in terms of reimbursing you, I had to be able to produce receipts. Right. So You had to spend way more money than, than actually yes, you would have. Yes, that's right, yeah. You went into grad school at U of Chicago, and, and in, in your mind, that could only lead to one place, professorhood, right? Yes, well, that's what graduate school is designed to train you to do. Right. Yes, and that's what I did, Yeah. actually. I was relatively successful at that. I got my first job as assistant professor at Yale. But then once I became an academic, I kind of refused to do what academics are supposed to do, which is write academic articles for academic journals. And instead, I started doing human rights reporting and other things. And the result was that I had, I've only had two real standard academic teaching jobs, one at Yale and one at Columbia. And in both cases, I didn't get promoted. Why is that? Because of the not writing enough papers? I, I think so. You know, at Yale, certainly that was the issue. I mean, at Yale, I was almost promoted. It was Did a, you rub people the wrong way? No, I, no, no, no. Everybody liked me. Uh, I, I don't feel there was any issue of personal hostility or vendetta or anything like that. No. Or ideology? I, nothing like no, that? No, nothing like that. Absolutely not. No, it was just... Uh, uh, you know, in fact, I recognize I didn't do what I was, you know, what you're supposed to do. I was kind of a little recalcitrant and did other things instead. So I don't fault them. Uh, I have uh, no quarrel with it. And it didn't work out too badly for me either. Right. So. <laughs> right. I, I remember, you know, we went, we went to visit you in New Haven once, I think, in my memory. Um, and I, I have memories of that, that house. Um, yeah, we had a big Victorian house in New Haven. The blackberry bushes in the backyard. Raspberry, but yes. raspberry bushes yes. in the backyard. That and, means uh, you were there in July. Okay, <laughs> that's uh, when the raspberry. All right. Was, yeah, I remember we went out and picked July. them. Yeah. Um, and I remember listening to that like uh, some record, some political singer. And I can't remember who it was talking about uh, who had the bomb. Someone Tom Lehrer. <laughs> yeah. Tom Lehrer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, first, we had the bomb, and that was good, for we're for peace and brotherhood. Right. Then Russia had the bomb, but that's okay, because the balance of power maintained that way. Who's next? Right. Right. Yes. I remember listening Songs to that. Songs of Tom Lehrer, yes. 
So that was during that period, and then 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 you moved to New York. Was it was that? Well, first from New Haven, we moved to Washington for one year. Oh, you did. And I had a fellowship at the U.S. Institute of Peace, and we lived in Bethesda. Okay. And then I moved to we moved to New York when I got the job at Columbia. Okay. And Sue got a job at Rockefeller University. Okay. What was she doing there? She was a science writer by then. She had when she was in New Haven, she took a bunch of when we were in New Haven, she took a bunch of courses in. Uh, biology, chemistry, biochemistry, and so on, and uh, became a writer on health and, and biological research. Okay. So that. at Rockefeller University, she was writing for their internal publication about the research that their uh, faculty members, many of whom were Nobel Prize winners, were doing. And it, was it exciting to move to New York? Just yes, to- that was a that was good. You know, that was uh, you know we always felt that that was. Uh, like our second home, and it's been very, very easy to integrate into it, and we're happy to be there. Yeah, and you still feel that way. You don't feel like I mean, you have a place in France now, but you still like the hustle and bustle. Yes, well, it's my home. I know people there. I like the cultural activities, and uh, I don't know. You know, I like the country too. I'm not saying I couldn't live anywhere else, but we're pleased to live there. You, you seem like an interesting dichotomy because I, I think. In some ways, and this is just me talking, so in some ways you seem extremely, I don't want to say this the wrong way, rational and, and like almost computer-like in your, in your retention of knowledge, stuff like that. But then you're also, you also seem really chaotic in some ways. I don't mean that as a diss. I'm just like... Well, it's very perceptive, yes. Yeah. I, I, You're a dichotomy of those two things. I am often quite disorganized and sloppy, and I've decided to look at that in a positive way as being an aspect of creativity to the extent that I have creativity. Um, I'm not a clean desk person. Right. Yeah, I guess. I, I don't think that's atypical, I guess, of people that, that... Well, see, like in the State Department. Yeah. I won't mention any names, but what someone said about me, I learned, is first... One of my bosses, he told other people that whatever you do, you must keep him, me, meaning me, you must keep him, because he's essential and invaluable for the office. But he also told them that I'm undisciplined, you know, and both of those things are true. Yeah. <laughs> you see, and they're related. Did, did it, did you think that's, that they're related? Did, they're, you, because it's the creativity lends itself towards that chaos and it allows you to... Well, the reason I have access to kinds of information that other people in the State Department say didn't have was because I worked on the same subject for a long time and I developed complicated human relationships with the people involved in it. Therefore, I had all kinds of personal networks. Like People would trust me with information because I was me that they wouldn't trust me with if I was a State Department official. But, of course, I didn't get into that position by behaving as a purely State Department official. Right. I had to trust them with some information sometimes, too, in a way that for the State Department would appear undisciplined. Right. So I, I brought something, but a, you know they had to learn to manage the cost of what I brought. Right. And ultimately, I decided that it was still it was worth having you around. Uh, yes, at a certain level, but they would. I, I believe that they would never give me a responsibility above a, a certain level. But you never had a desire to move up the, the chain, or did you? Um, I asked to have a slight, a somewhat higher position because, at one point, because I, I didn't care about that when I went into the State Department because I wasn't concerned about 
rank or titles and stuff like that. I was concerned about what I was doing. But I, as the more I served there, the more I understood that in a hierarchical bureaucratic organization, your title and rank is really very important. It determines who you get to talk to. What, it determines a lot of really trivial things too, like if you're going to a meeting and the number of people in the, that are in your party is such that you need three cars, it determines whether you are in the first, second, or third right. car. And I couldn't believe that after I was in the State Department for a few years, I started caring about bullshit like that. And that was one of the things that... Like you genuinely <laughs> did, just because everyone else did. Yeah, why is he in the second car and I'm in the third car? You know, right. You know, so uh, that was one of the just things... Just because of how it reflected on, on people's, people's uh, esteem of you? Yes. Well, in other words, could I speak up at a meeting? Could I, you know... Right. Uh, somebody's the principal and I'm not the principal. Somebody else. So it just, uh, it's the way the system works. But, right. Uh, was, and you have to know your place because you have to know whether whether you're supposed to be lead on a, on a conversation or not. Yes. Well, it's a system because, because it's not about you. Right. It's about the position of the United States. It's bigger than you. Right. And it's not about your opinions and, you know. But you must have felt sometimes, you know, in a situation like that where you're not supposed to talk to like, uh, I, I actually know well, maybe better than this. Most situation. of the time, when I was in meetings like that, when I wasn't supposed to talk, I would uh, talk anyway. Yeah, <laughs> right, <laughs> which is what you were saying. And sometimes, you know, and nobody stopped me, and uh, sometimes they thanked me. Right. But it was a bit awkward sometimes. Right, right. Sometimes I would just pipe up out of nowhere and solve a problem. Right. Because I knew what President Karzai was trying to get at, and they didn't. Right, but it could make someone look bad. Yes. Yeah, one of your higher ups. Yes, that's right. Yeah, you're 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 not just focused on that region now. Now you said you're now China might be a main focus. Well, for I'm working on China is that region. China. Well, okay. China has a border with Afghanistan. Okay. Okay. And yeah. China is very concerned now about uh, the stability of Afghanistan because of its impact directly on China as well as on Pakistan. Um, so when you go to when you go to China, you're you're dealing with their relationship with Afghanistan and Pakistan still. Yes, my my center is conducting with a, with a Chinese counterpart. We've been conducting a dialogue on a U.S.-China dialogue on Afghanistan and Pakistan. And that's the Center for International Cooperation. That's right, at right. New York University. And we've had three sessions of that: two in Beijing and one in New York. And now we're going to have some more sessions in Beijing, but also a. Um, we have sessions in Shanghai too, I should add, and uh, we will also have a, a, some kind of a regional meeting in Beijing because China is leading a regional effort on Afghanistan this year. Something called the Istanbul Process that we were involved with. Okay. So, you know, so I go to China, I go to sometimes to India. I'm hoping to go to Russia this spring. I've been invited, and I'm hoping to find uh, the time to do that. I've been to Turkey many times, Saudi Arabia. Of course, the United Arab Emirates, all dealing with all, Afghanistan and Pakistan. And all these with, with the, the, the CIC? Sometimes with CIC, sometimes with the State Department. Okay, okay. Uh, but for the same purposes? Yes. Okay. Um, which is? Well, each, each country has their own interests, and sometimes those interests can lead them to be disruptive, and sometimes they can lead them to help. So part of my job and part of my research uh, is about trying to understand what those conflicts of interest are and to develop alternative ways of meeting those needs that countries think they have so they don't come in conflict and it's possible to 
reduce the level of violence in Afghanistan and Pakistan because the competition and conflict among regional states is one of the drivers of the conflict there. Okay. So it's, it's, it's a form of mediation, essentially, that you're doing? Is that Well, I'm not actually a mediator, but um, I, can, I can help convene meetings uh, where people discuss things. I can, uh, you know, uh, often they'll be chaired by people who might be perceived as more neutral than I am, like by Norway or uh, someone or a country like that. Um, but you actually can... One of the things I found out through participating in diplomacy is that international affairs are characterized by an extremely high level of mistrust. And every country mistrusts others, maybe not all others. Um, for instance, I mentioned earlier when I was at this meeting with this Russian, who personally I have a good relationship with, but when I was talking, I was saying that the United States didn't want bases in Afghanistan. He said, we don't believe you. And in fact, they didn't believe. And he wasn't talking about me personally. Right. He thought that was the, that was the U.S.'s policy is to please tell them we will not do this, but we're actually going to do this. Right. Yeah. Um, and he had evidence to support that, too. Yeah. But he was misinterpreting it because he doesn't understand how wasteful and inefficient our government is. Right. So they would build these huge bases just so they could leave them in two years. Right. But they do. <laughs> and uh, so the level of mistrust is very, very high, and therefore when you're very mistrustful, I, this is true in personal relationships and also in international relationships, you misinterpret what other people do. Uh, you know, if you're very... Because you're looking, you're looking for them to be nefarious? You have an expectation so you, yeah. that they're trying to aggrandize themselves at your expense. Mm -hmm. So they may do something which they see as just defending themselves, uh, and but from your point of view, it looks very aggressive, like they're trying to attack you. That's very, very extremely common. To some extent, by having discussions to explain where uh, what the origin of that mistrust is, that doesn't make it go away because it's partly based on reality. But then you can come up with measures, which actually concretely illustrate that your long-term intentions are not hostile and build confidence. Those are what are called confidence-building measures. Okay. When you build confidence like that, then there's a slightly higher level of trust or lower level of mistrust, and then it becomes somewhat easier to start working on problems. And, and you start to build trust, which builds trust, right? right? Of course, what's difficult is when you're doing that in a peace process when you're at war, the very fact that you wouldn't be having the peace process if you weren't at war. Right. And the very fact that you're still at war means that every day, every hour, every minute, you and the enemy are doing things that increase your mistrust of each other. Right. Right. And uh, there. And so, but then there are other people sitting at a table talking about how. To right. But then each side. I've seen this myself firsthand. You know. Um, the, the Taliban say, well, if the Americans were serious about wanting peace, they wouldn't be sending more troops. And the Amer and we will say, and the African government will say, well, if the Taliban were serious about wanting to negotiate, they wouldn't be engaging in suicide bombings and assassinations of Afghan government officials and so on. So just the very act of being at war looks like you don't want peace, like you're not interested in negotiating. So it's a very difficult balancing act. Even though in your mind both sides do want peace. 
Well, everyone, everyone wants peace if it means if the if it means that your enemy surrenders. So the question on is there, not, on what terms. The yeah. question is on what terms. Yeah. And whether and but if you, I think that it's true that all side nobody believes that they can get all of their ultimate objectives through military means. But of course they have they they don't know and they have huge disagreements about what it would take for them to stop fighting and what would be acceptable for them to stop fighting, even if they don't think they can realize all their goals. So that's what a negotiation is about. Right. You explore that. It's not about, uh, as people often say, have they changed their ultimate goals? No, because, uh, I mean, I don't know. Do you know what your ultimate goals are? Do I know what my ultimate goals are? People would ask me in, in, in interagency meetings or they would ask, what are the Taliban's ultimate goals? And the way I would answer that question is just by saying, what are the United States' ultimate goals? Do we even have any? Right. You know, uh, and, uh, it, you know, we have papers that set out our ultimate goals because we're forced to write them, but those papers are actually an extremely poor guide to what we will do. Uh, and probably the Taliban have such uh, papers or at least uh, statements as well, but that doesn't determine what they do. But the question of what, what it will take what you need in order to stop fighting and instead pursue your goals in some other way is something that you don't really know in advance until you get into the process. The process of, of talking. Talking, and not, talking is just part of it. Talking, negotiating, and then engaging in actions that show confidence. For instance, the Taliban uh, want the United States to release some of their leaders from Guantanamo. Right. Um, that's their most important confidence-building measure. The, many parts of the United States government don't want to do that because they don't trust the Taliban. They think those people will go back and lead the jihad against the United States, and the Taliban are saying, no, they won't. They will you know, live peacefully in Qatar, but we don't trust them, and they don't trust us. So, so far, we haven't been able to resolve that, but it might be resolved in the next couple of months. Right, right, as you said. Obama's getting more serious about right, but as I mentioned in the song, I sit, uh, flit to the sit room with agency brother mans who stall in the small group to release detainees, and I did find that people from other agencies often were stalling about the release of these detainees, but, but talking out of the other side of their face, saying that they were that they were planning on it. I wouldn't accuse anyone of being uh, hypocritical or lying. They yeah. uh, actually seem to disagree with the president's policy of closing Guantanamo. Right. Of course, they're supposed to be working for the president, so they wouldn't openly say, "I don't." We're against the president's policy, but they would do everything they could to frustrate it. Right. Right. Do Do you think that? And they didn't really pretend otherwise. Right. They're, they were clear about them. Yes. They're, they're, yeah. Yes. Um, do you feel like it? all this stuff directly springs from the same, you know, uh, like you were going to protests as a, as a kid and stuff like that? I mean, anti-war stuff. And, you know, is it related to that, you think? The same bone inside you that, that desires peace and, just, and wants people to get along and wants to figure out ways to... Well... You know, sure, I'm kind of oriented in that way. But I wouldn't want to say that the people with whom I disagree don't want peace and they want war and violence, because I know them and they don't. Right. You know, um, they're maybe much more skeptical about the intentions of enemies 
and we have different, and I don't want to cast any aspersions on their good intentions. Maybe there are a few cases where I would like to do so, but not not uh, no, not, in, not in general. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't defend everything I did when I was eighteen or nineteen years old, and I guess there are relatively few people who would. And anyone who would defend everything they did when they were eighteen, nineteen years old, probably there's something wrong with that person. Yeah. But anyway, uh, so I wouldn't defend all that. But I, I, I had a, a sort of set of core values that I acted on in certain very angry and unthought-out ways at that time, and I hope I'm acting on them in a more mature and reflective way, although some people might accuse me of selling out. But at any rate, there is a common theme. Yeah. I asked my mom if she had any questions for you. Yes. Uh, let's see what she says. Oh, she's got a, it's a, it's a long list. Um, she's got a whole list of questions. What influenced you to study Afghanistan? We kind of talked about yeah. that. How does your Jewish background and Jewish training influence your career and your view of the world? That's a very interesting question because actually I think... This from Rachel. Yes, well, I, I shouldn't say it's interesting. I should demonstrate that it is interesting rather than assert it. But um, I think it's been very essential because... Not because Judaism is such and such, but because the way I was trained in it. You know, and other people are trained in it in other ways. But in what way were you trained in it? Well, I was, if you put it in the very simplest way, you know, there's a slogan about the Holocaust, never again. Now, some people interpret that as meaning never again to anybody, and some people interpret that as meaning never again to me. Right, right, <laughs> right. But you were, you were, you and were, I was part of interpretation to everybody. Never again to anybody. Now, yeah. of course... It has happened over and over again to many other people, and yes. it's not always possible to stop it, alas. Uh, and having good intentions is not enough. You know, so I was kind of raised with that idea. Then also, I think kind of a confluence of that, plus being at a very key age during the Civil Rights Movement in the United yeah. States. Like a very key event for me. I don't, even, I don't know if you know about this. In 1963, when I was 13 years old, my mother, Shirley, the one who had strawberries on her birthday, yes. because her birthday was April 2nd, yep. um, took me with the American Jewish Congress to the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, where I heard Martin Luther King give his I Have a Dream speech yeah. in person. And I also heard uh, a speaker from the American Jewish Congress, Abraham Joshua Heschel, give his speech, and he was a refugee from Nazi Germany, in which he said, the greatest crime is silence. That's what he said? That's what he said, Okay. yes. So, without saying that whether or what I've done is wrong or right, I may have misinterpreted those things or applied them wrong. Nonetheless, those things were very uh, formative ideas and ideals for me. And kind of going to the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom with the American Jewish Congress is kind of a symbol of the way I was raised. Right. It was it was a, a, a liberal Judaism, a, a forward-thinking openness, all that. Well, yes, some people would criticize it, but that is that is that's the values with which I was raised and through which I see things. Now, there's another aspect which is also. Uh, Interesting, which is uh, well, I won't say anything. I'll should demonstrate it, but is a little less intuitive, perhaps. But because I received a fairly rigorous, at least high school education in the Bible, 
Talmud, Midrash, Jewish ways of, uh, uh, of thinking about law and so on, it's actually made it much easier for me to understand Muslims. Okay. Because Islam is really structured in a very similar way. Yeah. Um, so I can understand their ideas about reasoning on the basis of scripture, developing law through interpretation. It, for instance, in everybody knows the word Sharia, which means Islamic law. Well, Sharia in Arabic means the way or a path. Okay. It's exactly the same word as the Hebrew word halakha. Okay. Which is the word for Jewish law, which means a way or a path. Okay. Um, and the law is very is derived in similar ways. So, it's sort of the concept of uh, you know, that kind of Islamic jurisprudence is rel relatively easy for me to understand because of its similarity to uh, Jewish upbringing that I have. Sharia law, halakha, Hashem, right? I mean, it's the, are they the same kind of? Well, Hashem means the name. Of course, the opening, which is a a way, a, um, a way of referring to God in Hebrew without saying the word God or saying the name of God. Uh, of course, sure. the opening verse of the Quran is Bismillah Rahman Rahim. Or sorry, I'm saying in Hebrew Bismillah Rahman Rahim. Bismillah is Bishem Elohim. Okay. Bismillah okay. in the name of God. Okay. It's the same words, actually. Uh, and then harachaman, harachim, those are also Hebrew words. So uh, so in Arabic also, the name of God, Ismullah, is very important, just like Hashem in, uh, in, in Hebrew or in Judaism. They also don't speak the name of God? Well, they don't even have a name of God. I mean, like Allah is not the name of God. Allah just means God, like God, Elohim. Yeah. 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 Um, well, I mean, yeah, they're both... Come from the same. The Bible, being much older, goes yeah. back to a time when gods had names, and of course, so the God of the Bible apparently said his name was uh, Yote Vavhe, right? Meaning the one who exists. Let's let's go back to Rachel has more questions, right? She's yeah. chomping at the bit. She really wants to. How do you handle working in a region of the world where success seems unattainable? And maybe that's a pessimistic view, but she. Well, the whole question about success is is something I've thought about a lot. You know, we have to live our lives according to the tempo of our lives, and the tempo of our lives is not the tempo of history. I like and that. It's not very original, actually. There's, it's comes, it's a version of something from a movie called Jonah, who will be twenty five years old in the year two thousand. It's a movie about your generation. Okay. Because okay. it it came out in nineteen seventy five. It's a Swiss movie. It's in French. Jonah qui aura vingt-cinq ans en l'an deux mille. Okay. And it's about all these sort of disillusioned sixties people in nineteen seventy five. And one of the couples has a, a son named Jonah, and they're and they're saying Jonah will be twenty five in right. the year two thousand. You know, so far in the future. So, right. uh, which is just about your age, probably. Right. Well, yeah. you're you're younger than that. Uh, I, yeah, Josiah is one year younger. Than I was eighty. That. I was twenty and yeah. twenty-one. Yeah. Right. So, in that movie, one of the things that disillusioned these leftist Europeans was the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968. And one of the people says, and he says it in French. I don't remember it in French, but in English, it's history doesn't move at the 
tempo of a human life. That's right. Yeah. So, I can't measure per my personal success, if that is the right word, by whether I've, you know, succeeded in changing history. That's you can only do what's right in, in each moment well, of I your life. Well, I can try. And then also, you know, history is not a story with a beginning, middle, and an end. And nothing that ever happens could really be accurately characterized as success or failure. You know, at one They're time... Just the development of things. Yes. One time I had a... I was, when I was teaching at Columbia, I had a, a student. She's now a leading scholar of counterterrorism. But she was uh, uh, getting into an elevator and engaged in an animated conversation with me. And she said, but Professor Rubin, and she was, you know, thinking about Marxism, she said, Professor Rubin, if class struggle is not the motor of history, then what is? And I said, as the elevator doors closed on her, there is no motor of history. It's just one damn thing after another. Right, right. So history is not a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. There's never an end point where you can judge whether it's a success or a failure. Mm -hmm. You know, like there's this old Chinese story, which I, I can't remember if I'll get it right exactly, but one day uh, a peasant in a village with a son found that a wild horse had wandered into uh, his, his area, you know, and he was able to, and people said, you're so lucky, you got this beautiful horse for nothing. And he said, well, we'll see. Then one day his son was riding the horse, and the horse threw the son, and the son broke his leg and became a cripple. And people said, oh, that's so sad that your son became a cripple. He said, well, we'll see. And then uh, there was a war, and the emperor asked, sent messages that all the people should send their sons to fight the glorious battle on behalf of the empire. Only his son couldn't go because his leg was broken. So they said, oh, it's so sad that your son can't serve the emperor because of his injury. And he said, well, we'll see. And then nobody else's son came back from the right. war, and they said, you're so fortunate your son was injured so he wasn't killed in the war. And he said... We'll see. So this story can go on. You feel as you feel like you, you, you live in that in that way, and you just you kind of keep stay stay level headed and, and easy, but it's like a Zen mentality. Well, I, I don't know. I don't achieve it, but that is what I. That's what you strive to. for. For instance, one of the common questions I'm asked, I've been asked for years about Afghanistan, is, are you optimistic or pessimistic? And I've developed a very simple answer to that question. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or yes, or yes. No, I'm not. Definitely no. I'm not optimistic or right, pessimistic. Right, right, I'm not optimistic because there are so many reasons to understand that uh, people might continue to suffer. And I'm not pessimistic because there are so many reasons to understand that people will continue to struggle against it and unexpected things can happen. Besides which, it's just... There's no intellectual challenge or dignity in being pessimistic about a situation like that. Anybody can do it, right? You know, so right. why bother? But I know, and, and like you said, what, what's like pessimistic in what way? What's the outcome? Like, I mean, like, I mean, total destruction of the human race. Even that is like, what's the, you know? Then something else happens. Like, if you. Well, I would consider that a very poor outcome. For us, but I mean, maybe not for, for the us. universe. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, what, what? But I, 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 you know, I don't have, you know, there's, 
I don't believe that my my efforts, such as they are, are not aimed at the total elimination of war, violence, or the end of strife, anything like that. That's not possible. No. You know, I'm just doing what I can do within the context that I have, and I don't expect to be successful. It's, it's, look, look in, in a way, I mean, it's not like what I do, but it, it, the idea of the, the art being in the process you know, yeah. or or the the importance being in the process, not not in in focusing on the outcome. You just live every day as correctly as you can within your moral compass. Yeah. Well, some people say, you know, that, I mean, it's part of the question, like optimistic and pessimistic. How do you work on something like this for thirty years? And uh, one of besides saying, are you, when, when they ask me, are you optimistic or pessimistic? I say no. And then uh, sometimes I also say I don't do mood swings. I do analysis. Okay. No. Okay. That's intellectualization, as my right. mother, the psychologist, would have said. The other thing is, I once wrote a blog post about this. I'll send you the link. Is the glass half empty or half full? So there are not a number of. And I don't know if you've ever seen this, but there's a picture of um, Larry David staring at a glass which is either half empty or half full, and he's just staring at it, really puzzled. Right. So I put that picture of Larry David up on my blog. You know, so, of course, there are different answers to that. Is the glass half empty or half full? Um, one answer, which I gave about Afghanistan, is it, it doesn't matter. It's just sitting on a rickety table that's going to fall over. So the other, and George Carlin's answer is, the glass is too fucking big. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's they're all good. These so, are all good. Good uh, yeah, so, takes. Uh, it depends on what your expectations are. That's good. And I think I think we should shift directions. She, yeah. my, my mom asked again. Yeah. What what uh, creative outlets do you have? What do you enjoy doing? I enjoy cooking, eating, tasting wines, going to listen to music, and most recently, uh, composing. Ironic rap songs based on Quincy Jones. Ironic? <laughs> well, it's sort of ironic, you know. About it's ironic about my my past work. I, I'll I'll write something a little more s- straight up about what I think, but uh, at the moment, but I was pleased to have this creative outlet. Yeah. Yeah. You're gonna do another one? Uh, I can't say. I never intended to do this one. So how did it ha- ha- how did it happen? You just wrote one line and it kind of parlayed into the next, or what? Well, I you know I I listen to music a lot, and I don't know why I came back to this Quincy Jones track. I think partly because of the line that he told me. You know, you don't know the dude. Quincy's his first name. Right. He told me ice. Keep doing what you're doing, man. Don't give a damn if the squares don't understand. Right. You let them tell you what to say and what to write, your whole career will be over from tomorrow night. Rap from your heart. Your heart's in the street, etc. So that kind of spoke to me about what Holbrook encouraged me to do. Um, Although it's not quite true because he also told me, you can't say exactly what you think when you're writing for the interagency 
you have to think that you're writing for very, very intelligent fourth graders. Right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so he didn't say, he didn't say uh, exactly, you know, don't let him tell you what to say and what to write. But he encouraged me to say things that went against the grain. He just he tried to uh, show me how to say it in a way that would be heard. Have you just been into music? I mean, like listening to music. I know you like jazz. Well, I would say that's something I got a lot from Sue. Okay. From my wife. Okay. Probably she brought more music into my life. And, you know, it's been growing the past few decades. It, and I guess partly it's being in New York and looking for things to do. I think we used to, our musical life used to be mostly classical. Although living in Hyde Park, Chicago, we used to go to blues joints sometimes because that is, of course, is the home of the blues. Yeah. Um, I don't really remember how we started going to jazz exactly. I think one thing that had to do with it was the founding of Jazz at Lincoln Center by okay. Wynton Marcells, which is quite close to us, so we started going there, and then we sort of uh, branched out from there. I can't really remember, though, but it's become more and more important. And also when we're in France in the summer, there are a tremendous number of concerts, mostly classical, uh, and especially string quartets, but listening to string quartets in those kind of in, very intimate venues that. In, in France, it's really, it's a very different experience than going to a, a big concert hall yeah. and so on. I so much prefer a small, yeah. uh, a small classical group yeah. to, to a big orchestra. I mean, there's yes. something awesome about a big orchestra, but there's something that... It's like going to a jazz club. It's the same yeah. kind of feeling that you get when yeah. you're seeing the music being Feels, made. It's more intimate is the yeah. right way, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, since I was little, I know, you know, you've always been a wine guy, food, wine, this sort of stuff. And I don't know over time, but it seems these days it's bigger than ever that everybody's a, everybody's a foodie. I, I was just kind of going with the flow of that kind of thing. It was, it was going on while I was uh, coming up. Uh, but I, I went with it in a big way. Yeah. What's 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 like a, a hot dish that you like to cook? One of your specialties? Oh, I don't know if I'd say that I have specialties. I, I like I make simple stewed things, you know, like uh, chicken with mustard sauce, cocoa. I make actually sometimes I make bouillabaisse, but it's easier. That's the fish soup. Yeah, it's easier to do that in Provence where you have the right kind of fish. Right. Um, but mostly. I don't focus on particular dishes. It's I develop kind of techniques and palettes to go with with ingredients. And I really, I really believe in bringing out the best in the products that you can get. So yeah. I, I, you know, I really like getting really fresh products at farmers markets uh, and so on. And then then figure out what to do with yeah, it. Yeah, and like my idea of a really good dish is take two or three really good ingredients and put them together in a kind of creative and harmonious way. Yeah. I'm, I, I mean, I'm, I'm very similar to that, actually. Yeah. That's pretty much how I live my life. Yeah. I go to the farmer's market up here, get whatever looks good, and I and I cook it right. in whatever way I think is the best. And and I, I try not to adulterate too much. Right. Uh, Sometimes if I'm, you know, if I have to make, if I'm make, making dinner for 8, 12 people, then you got to pick a recipe. Yeah. And go get the, go get the materials. You know, unless you're a real culinary genius, you just go to the market and make something for 12 people. Right. Um, do you cook for 12 people? Occasionally. Rarely. I used to do it a couple times a year. 
last few years being away from home so much, I pretty we pretty much stopped giving dinner parties. Yeah, and so on. Um, and then wine. I mean, you do you've got a, a serious wine palate, right? Well, I wouldn't exaggerate. You know, I enjoy drinking wine. I've been fortunate in life to have friends with a lot more money very than I have who have a very serious interest in wine and thanks to their friendship I have been able to taste many things that I would not otherwise have been able to have access to. Can you taste the, the difference between a $500 bottle and a $100 bottle? I have no idea because I don't believe I've ever tasted all right. Either you, if I, you know I, what I'm I, saying. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. I, I you know, uh, above a certain level. Quality is not always measured by the price. I don't know. You know, there are wines that cost five hundred dollars a bottle or a thousand dollars a bottle because of their age or their right. rarity. Um, once or twice at a tasting, I have had such wines, and they are truly remarkable. Yeah. Uh, and I can sense that although again if I had them in a blind tasting I don't know but you know I'm not a wine snob I, I can enjoy wines at any price range if uh, in the right setting if they get you fucked up well no not that it's just it's not just about a product you know it's part of an experience of eating being in an environment sure, sure. you know like I also I, if I've been to the place where the wine is made then I enjoy it more which doesn't mean it tastes better, but there are other elements of the experience yeah. of of wine drinking than just the purely physical one. Yeah, it's a nice thing. Yeah, yeah, it's a natural product, and it's you know it's a Mediterranean thing too. Yeah, so I'm attracted to the Mediterranean, and perhaps that is you know part of my proto-Zionist upbringing. Right, right. I don't make any real estate claims on that basis, but no. But you bought a place in France, yes, real estate, real estate wise. Yes, but I paid for it. I didn't. Uh, right. I didn't you say didn't claim it. it I didn't yours, right. say that the Bible that God gave me that piece of land. <laughs> right. Other people should move. <laughs> right. 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 Well, on that note, very controversial <laughs> note. Um, we should roll. It's okay. ten. It's ten twelve. All right. Thank you for talking to me. I, I hope we got to something. You know, I was. I always want to dig deeper somewhere into your psyche, but or you know, in anyone's psyche that I'm talking to. But that was excellent. Maybe we'll do a second one and we'll get uh, get even deeper. Certainly. Okay. Or we'll talk off off tape too. Yeah. Thank you. Wandering Wolf Podcast at gmail.com at Yoni Wolf on Twitter. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. It was an in-depth talk, maybe beyond some of our comprehension levels as non-readers, but it was enjoyable nonetheless. Don't worry, here it comes. You're gonna get to hear the song. You're gonna get to hear the song. And I'm not sure what it's called. Is it called Back on the Block? Is it called S-Rap? I'm not sure what he's calling it right now, to be honest. But it's going to play. It's going to play after the outro. It's the post-outro outro. All right, that's it. Keep wandering.
outro. I'm like, oh, thanks, buddy. <laughs> or something like that. As he proposes peaceful measures Groove with the track as the root gets fresher I've been away for a long time Now I'm not only back, but I'm here to rhyme So bust to move, cause I am too Back on the block, portraying the dude So hey young world, ask the senior advisor How did the dude teach you to be wiser? Teach me the right way, so my eyesight may See that path that leads to a brighter day So if you're ready to walk with the talk, never fear Cause I'm back on the block, 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 block. Credentials, senior advisor on South Central Asia, home of the body bag. You want to die? Wave the wrong color flag. They're telling why, way before UBL, I slammed and jammed around that little part of hell. I used to criticize, never play down. You contradict, verbal spray down. But I was lucky cause I never caught the hard time. I was blessed with the skill to bust a dope rhyme. All my homies quit or caught the foggy. Living jet lagged, wake up groggy. Living that life that we thought was it. Bootlegging, get the text flipped. I'm not gonna lie to you cause I don't lie. I kick thick game with my nephews, why? Cause I'm back on the block, I got my life back. So I school the fools without the change track. I get static on the style of my technique. Complexity, the blatant way in which I speak. But the dude knew policy's no kitty game. You don't know the dude? Richard's his first name. He told me, Rube, keep doing what you're doing, man. Don't give a damn if the line don't understand. You let him tell you what to say and what to write. Your whole career will be over by tomorrow night. S rap from your heart, not the sweet. S rap with me, and be our Ruben tweet. The dude was deaf, no doubt, no bait and switch. The man could roll with S Milosevic. Back. Back on the block. Back. Back on the block. Back on the block. So we cannot talk in real. Analyze the facts and even truth shock. Back. Back on the block. 
I'm on the low side, I'm on the high side, secret no foreign TSSCI side. I'm getting read into the compartment. The dude took me outside the department, fly Dubai, Kabul and Islamabad, brief in the skiff, piss out in the tiny pod, Great Wall, Bosporus, peaceful and prosperous, new Silk Road dart through the mountainous heart of Asia, the brotherlands, back in the motherland, flip to the sit room where agency brother mans, all in the small group to transfer detainees, erase another trace of Bush and Cheney's, what's that, yellow flannel, it's Dio de Cuisi, work the back channel, then chill out the DC, get on up with the PC, put the sweet in the lock, but tears came to my eyes when he read out that sock, back, back on the block. believed a better future is possible for Afghanistan, for Pakistan, and the wider region. He once observed, and I quote, in every war of this sort, there's always a window for people who want to come in from the cold. There has to be a place for them. Those were his words, and that is the policy of the United States. It may not produce peace tomorrow or the next day, but it does offer our best chance. And it offers especially the best chance for the people of Afghanistan and Pakistan, who so richly deserve a different future. Back up and give the sister rooms to let diplomacy bloom. To whom it may concern or consume, as I reminisce the mistrust that exists before this. But now we brought about a twist. Cause I remember reading of our people bleeding, fought for knavery, killed for bravery. We should have got our policy much faster. Mitigate an avoidable disaster. I was once told by the dude that knowledge is food to feed the fish. To conclude, my insight enables me to enlighten the rigid of minds and I put them in flight. So I redraft, pre-clear, and defend, relitigate, re-clear, and resend instructions that should have long gone by no dis Decisions already made by POTUS interagency messed up. The IC dressed up, lies perpetrated as truth, and it left us confused. But I've seen it all before, from Babylon to the Third World War. I'm only one man, a humanoid entity. Back on the block, I reclaim my identity. The dude, 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 dude. Back, back on the block. Anticipated that uh, at the outset there were going to be some uh, areas of friction, uh, to put it mildly, in getting this thing off the ground. Uh, we still believe that you've got to have a parallel track to at least look at the prospect of some sort of political reconciliation. 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 reconciliation.